Carolina, welcome to the final episode of this third season of Jew I Don't Know on Unsolved Jewish Mysteries. Wow. We have come to the greatest mystery of them all, at least I think so, the relic of relics. The ultimate discovery of ultimate discoveries were it to ever actually be discovered. The Ark of the Covenant. The gold box that contains inside the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, carried down Mount Sinai by Moses himself. It's the actual Ten Commandments. Many have gone searching, all have failed. It is the subject of legends and myths and books and Indiana Jones movies. Like a prerequisite course, this episode will assume you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark at some point, but if you haven't, that's okay. You'll just miss good jokes, I guess. Okay, so the last anyone heard of the Ark was 2,500 years ago, when it quite suddenly and most abruptly disappeared from Jewish history. So what is it that we're looking for? Where could it have gone? It's a great quest. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. With a bolt of lightning from God's fingertips, Ten Commandments were inscribed onto two pieces of stone high atop Mount Sinai in the desert wilderness, between slavery in Egypt and redemption in the Promised Land. There Moses watched, awestruck, as we were handed some of what we consider our most fundamental laws. Taking the stone tablets in his hands, Moses made his way down the mountain. And then what happened? Well, a lot. Now, the first thing that Moses did upon receiving the two most holiest rocks in human history was to smash them to pieces. Like many a birthright trip staffer, while he hauled himself up and down the mountain in service to the Israelites, they honored his commitment with wanton rejoicing, sexual promiscuity, and a rave that would put Coachella to shame. Incensed at the thought of such people earning divine favor, he tossed the Ten Commandments at the golden calf, destroying both in a ball of flame. Of course, he was then obligated to trek back up the mountain, get another pair of tablets, and come back down. But this time, he found the Israelites much calmer, compliant, and no longer demanding bathroom breaks when we literally stopped like 15 minutes ago. Us tour guides have much to learn from the example of our greatest prophet. Now, Moses also built a box called an ark in which to keep the stone tablets. The ark was constructed of very exact specs that God had given Moses also on top of Mount Sinai. It was roughly four feet long, two and a half feet wide, and two and a half feet tall. It was made of wood, but covered completely in gold. It had a lid, and on top of the lid were two cherubim, angel-like figures with spread wings, also made of gold. And in between them, on top of the ark, was the exact spot where God's presence was said to appear. And then, the whole thing was covered with a veil of cloth. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was used initially as a beacon. As the Israelites wandered through the desert on the way to the Promised Land, the Ark was carried at the front of the multitudes for all to see and follow. Now, you've heard, of course, of the parting of the Red Sea, but I bet you didn't know that it happened twice, the second time at the Jordan River. 
Needing to cross the Jordan to enter the Promised Land, the priests stepped into the river carrying the ark, at which point the waters ceased to flow. The priests held their ground while the Israelites crossed, and once they stepped out of the river with the ark, the waters flowed once more. Cool story. Once in the Promised Land, the ark became a weapon. Joshua used it during the battle for the city of Jericho. For a week, he had the ark circle the walls of the city with trumpets blaring, and on the seventh day, the walls fell and the city fell too. Such was the power of the ark to level cities and armies, a testament to the power of God. It was also, it turns out, quite liable to zap you if you got too close. There are several accounts of people reaching out to touch the ark only to be leveled by the proverbial lightning bolt from God, some scholars speculate that the Bible could be describing the Israelites' inadvertent discovery of electromagnetism. Perhaps the stone tablets were made of a particularly magnetic rock, which, when encased in a highly conductive gold box in the searing dry heat of the summer, created so much static electricity that on the rare occasion when someone touched it, well, instant death. But remember this lightning bolt anyway, because it might provide us with a clue later on. So eventually the ark settled where the Israelites did at the city of Shiloh, which is in the center of the West Bank today. Shiloh became the religious center of Judaism, of which the ark, housed inside a tent at its very center, was the focus of pilgrimage, ritual, worship, and the divine presence. And there it sat for hundreds of years. Later on, when the Israelites were facing the Philistines in battle, they decided to bring the Ark out of Shiloh to help them on the battlefield. Unfortunately, they lost, and the Ark ended up captured by the Philistines. This was completely traumatic for the Israelites. I mean, people dropped dead upon hearing the news, and Judaism was suddenly without its most sacred symbol. But luckily, the captivity didn't last too long. Rather than destroy the Ark, the Philistines moved it around from place to place in the realm like a lucky charm. But like the sweater my ex-girlfriend left behind, the Ark's presence brought nothing but plague, ruin, and death to the enemies of Israel. After less than a year, the Philistines paid the Israelites in gold to take the Ark back. And from that point on, the Ark was housed in a couple different locations, until King David brought it to his new capital city in Jerusalem. David's son, King Solomon, built the temple which housed the Ark at its very center, in a room called the Holy of Holies. All except the high priest were forbidden to enter, and even he was only allowed in once a year on Yom Kippur. The temple stood where the Muslim Dome of the Rock stands today in the Old City, on top of the Temple Mount, above the Western Wall. For the next 400 years, the temple, with the Ark of the Covenant, with the Ten Commandments inside, stood at the apex of Jewish life and ritual. The focal point of worship, temporal power, and a kind of phone booth with a direct line to God. The throne room for the very presence of the divine here on earth. And then, quite suddenly, the Ark disappeared from our history. The last mention of the Ark in the Hebrew Bible comes from the second book of Chronicles. King Josiah ordered the priests from the tribe of Levi to return the Ark to the Temple of Solomon. Apparently, and for reasons we don't really know, it had been removed, and Josiah notes that it had become a burden on the priests. Presumably, the Levites returned the Ark to its place in the Holy of Holies, although that's not explicitly stated. But either way, the Ark is never mentioned again. 
Judaism's holiest object is completely dropped from our historical record. A short time later, in the year 586 BCE, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and drove the Jews into exile to Babylon. The Book of Chronicles only writes that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon carried off the holy vessels from the temple and put them in his own temple in Babylon. But the Ark isn't mentioned, nor is it mentioned in any Babylonian sources, which has led many people, from ancient rabbis to modern scholars, to hypothesize that it disappeared just before the Babylonian invasion. But why? And who took it? And where did it go? Where is the Ark? I thought we'd settle that. The Ark is somewhere very safe. Let's assume for a minute that the US government does not have it stuffed in a warehouse somewhere, or that aliens beamed it up with the blueprints for the pyramids. There are a bunch of theories, so roll up your sleeves, grab your whip, and your fedora. Here we go. Since it doesn't seem like the Babylonians made off with it in 586, since they never mentioned it, and since there's no mention in any Jewish or Babylonian sources of the Ark being destroyed, it's reasonable to assume that it disappeared just before the invasion. One theory comes from the second book of Maccabees, which details the story of Hanukkah and is not included as an official book of the Hebrew Bible. In this story, having received an inside tip from God that the Babylonians were coming, the prophet Jeremiah took the ark to Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo was the mountain from which Moses saw the promised land, the point at which God would not let him go any further, and where he died and was buried in an unmarked grave. Jeremiah hid the ark in a cave and blocked the entrance. When some of his followers came looking for it, he insisted that the spot would remain unknown until the day when God would gather all the people together again and the ark could be properly consecrated. Which has never happened. Now Mount Nebo does exist. It's near the northern tip of the Dead Sea, inside Jordan. Archaeologists have found the remains of a Byzantine church from the 4th century, but of course no hidden tomb of Moses, nor any trace of the Ark or Jeremiah's secret cave. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, the plot revolves around the discovery of the Ark's resting place in the ancient Egyptian city of Tanis. Nazis have discovered Tanis. Just what does that mean to you, uh, Tanis? Well, well the city of Tanis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Well, not so much. Sorry, Indy. Tanis is a real place, located in the Nile Delta north of Cairo. Around the same time that Kings David and Solomon reigned in Jerusalem, around 1000 BCE, Tanis served as the royal residence of the pharaohs. They eventually moved on, and Tanis was abandoned during the Roman era. Although Tanis is archaeologically significant, there's no historical association with the Lost Ark. That was fictionalized by Indiana Jones. Jewish tradition does suggest that Tanis, deep in the Nile Delta, might have been the spot where the baby Moses was found floating in the basket of reeds, but again, there's no historical evidence that the Israelites ever lived there. But whatever, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the greatest movies of all time, so who cares? Alright, moving right along. 
Now, even if Tanis is a bust, it turns out that the African continent may very well be the right place to look. There are two strong claimants to the Lost Ark there. First, we head down to Southern Africa. And this story is really cool, so stick with me. The Lemba people are an ethnic group with some 50,000 members, located primarily in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Ethnically and linguistically, the Lemba are pretty close to their neighbors. But in history and religious beliefs, they sound a lot like Jews. They observe Shabbat, have dietary restrictions that resemble kosher laws, circumcise male children, and wear prayer shawls while praying. They also practice ritual animal slaughter, a practice with a strong Middle Eastern and Jewish origin, but not usually found in Africa. Some other cultural practices and beliefs resemble Islam. And DNA studies, while circumstantial but inconclusive for a direct link to Jewish ancestry, do tend to show that their Y chromosome descends from the Middle East. So at some point in their past, the Lemba were most likely in the Middle East. Now you combine that evidence with their oral traditions and things get really, really interesting. According to the Lemba, they are descended from a group of Jews who left the land of Israel around 2,500 years ago, the time of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, the same time that the Ark disappeared. They moved south into Arabia and settled in what is today Yemen, in a city that they call Sena. Sena to the Lemda is what Jerusalem is to the Jews. It's considered the essential holy city of their origins, the place where they someday hope to return. And there is a city in Yemen called Sena, and it does have a Jewish population going back a couple thousand years, although now it's abandoned. And eventually the Lemba left in search of riches and at long last settled into their present-day locations in southern Africa. Okay, so cool story, but here's where it gets even better. According to their traditions, these early Lemba slash Jews carried with them a sacred object when they left Sena in Yemen. It's called the Nagoma, which means drum. Inside the drum was placed certain holy relics and it was carried in battle. And remember how I told you to remember the part about getting struck by lightning if you try to touch it? Well, according to the Lemba, only the high priests were allowed to go near this Nagoma, since anyone else who did would be hit with the fire of God and killed. So yeah, the Lembas say that the Nagoma is the lost Ark of the Covenant. Whether they brought it directly from Jerusalem or somehow came into possession of it in Yemen is hard to say, but they definitely claim to have carried it into southern Africa. So the question is... What happened to it then? The Lembas say that the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed about 700 years ago. It's unclear why, but remember that date, 700 years ago. Luckily, the Lemba had built an exact replica, using a piece of the original, and this they retained in their possession until the 1940s when British colonial officials seized it for a museum. It then disappeared in the 1960s, when Zimbabwe fought for its independence. The Lemba assumed that the replica had been lost, stolen, or destroyed somehow. But then, in 2007, it was found tucked away in a storage room and put back on display in the Museum of Human Science in Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. I'll post a picture on my website, jewautonode.com, so you can take a look. It doesn't look like too much to me, really mostly like a hollowed out drum missing its top. 
but there are some structural details similar to the descriptions of the Ark. And remember how Limba Oral Tradition says that the original Ark was destroyed 700 years ago? Well, radiocarbon dating on what they claim is the replica Nagoma dates it to, you guessed it, right around the year 1350. But sure, sure, go ahead, tell me this is all just a coincidence. Now, of course, many historians do disagree with this whole story. It requires too many assumptions, has too many gaps, and has an over-reliance on Limba oral tradition, which is no doubt less than accurate after a couple thousand years. Still, it's clear that deep in southern Africa today, the Lemba likely came from the Middle East, practice many Jewish and Islamic rituals and customs, are deeply familiar with the Ark, and hold as their most sacred object an item that they purport to be the Ark's exact replica. So, something must be going on, right? Okay, so another theory also claims that the Ark made its way to Africa, but only got as far as Ethiopia. Today, in the city of Aksum, next to the Church of St. Mary of Zion, an elderly monk guards the door to a small chapel containing the original and intact Ark of the Covenant. He's the only one ever allowed inside to gaze on the Ark. For anyone else to enter, it's the fire of God and all that. Guardianship is passed down from monk to monk when one dies and another takes his place. The historical traditions of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, describing how the Ark got there, is recorded in their sacred work, called the Kebra Nagast. Written down in the 14th century, but containing oral traditions that go back much further, the Kebra Nagast details a lot of the stories of the Hebrew Bible, but is particularly focused on King Solomon. King Solomon is the son of King David, who established Jerusalem as the capital of the Israelites, and it was Solomon who built the temple in Jerusalem and placed the Ark at its center. To make a very long story short, part of which I mentioned in episode 64 on the Ten Lost Tribes, according to the Kebra Nagast, the Queen of Sheba, who's also mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, she travels to Jerusalem to visit King Solomon. She is attracted to his wisdom and knowledge and is inspired to start worshipping the Hebrew god. Solomon is attracted to her and seduces her on her last night in town. She heads off to Ethiopia and bears a son named Menelik. When he grows up, Menelik goes to visit Solomon. Solomon offers Menelik the crown, but Menelik instead wants to go back to Ethiopia. So Solomon forces a group of men to accompany Menelik back. But pissed off about getting kicked out of Jerusalem to go with Menelik to Ethiopia, these guys steal the Ark in the dead of night and smuggle it out when they leave the next day. And that's how the Ark made its way to Ethiopia, where it remains today. Of course, the time frame on this is around 400 years before the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, around 950 BCE as opposed to 586 BCE. The point of the Kebra Nagast is to legitimize the royal dynasty that took over Ethiopia in the late 1200s. They called themselves the House of Solomon and claimed descent from Solomon, Sheba, and Menelik, and therefore the justification for their right to rule. And rule they did, all the way from the late 1200s until 1974. And all this while, the Ark has been shut away inside this tiny church, it may have been occasionally taken out and paraded around town to celebrate major festivals during the year, but that's no longer the practice. Currently, the security system for the most sacred object in Western history is an elderly monk. You shall not! 
can't pass! Yeah, so best keep it inside and not tempt fate. In any case, Ethiopian Orthodox churches all have replicas of the Ark to use in ceremonies. But whether the one in Aksum is the real one, well, no one except one old monk has laid eyes on it in hundreds of years. Sometimes you're best off hiding valuable things in plain sight. Ultimately, if the Ark still exists, the best place to look might be the most obvious. Jerusalem. We know that there is a network of tunnels and side rooms underneath the Temple Mount in the Old City, the place where the Ark was kept inside the Temple. And those are just the tunnels that we know about. Surely there are plenty more unknown places down there, holding fascinating clues to the ancient Jewish and Jerusalem past. King Josiah, who I mentioned earlier, he ruled a decade or so before the Babylonian conquest in 586. One theory holds that he had a foretelling of the coming invasion and solicited a few trusted priests to hide the Ark deep in a secret chamber underneath Solomon's temple. But by the time that the Jews returned from exile, the location had been forgotten and no amount of searching ever turned it up. Now what stands over that spot now is the Dome of the Rock. Authority over the Temple Mount itself, while under Israeli territorial control, is in the hands of the Muslims. Not wanting for political reasons to legitimize an ancient Jewish past there, they forbid any archaeological work of any kind on or under the Temple Mount. There is an effort that's called the Temple Mount Sifting Project that aims to work around this. During renovations of the Temple Mount in the 1990s, the Muslims dumped 9,000 tons of dirt that they had dug up into a nearby valley without conducting or allowing any examination of the process. So the sifting project does just that. It carefully sifts through all that dirt looking for finds, and to date it has found mountains of stuff. Mostly pottery and tiles, but also coins and Hebrew inscriptions dating back to the era of King Solomon. So it's not hard to imagine that the Temple Mount, which is an area larger than the Roman Forum, that it contains immensely more valuable finds. Various forays have been made over the years to explore those tunnels or carve new ones. In the 1980s, the Western Wall's chief rabbi engaged in just such an effort, hoping to push his way into the inner core of the mount, where, presumably, he would find clues to the Ark's existence, if not the Ark itself. To prevent mass violence, Israel sealed up the entrance with concrete, ensuring that no one could get in again. So it's a lot of fun to think about what might be down there, and it drives me not a little crazy that we probably won't ever know. It may well be that when you stand at the Western Wall today, the Ark itself might just be a few meters behind the stones, covered in dust and sitting in darkness, so close and yet so far away. this is a theological question. Why did God allow the Ark of the Covenant to disappear in the first place? If it was so important to the chosen people, if it was God's throne on earth and essential to the practice of Jewish ritual and tradition, then why would God allow it to have escaped our grasp for the last 2,500 years? 
There are a bunch of answers, most having to do with the Jewish people becoming unworthy of its presence. But here's my answer, and I would expand it to include many of the mysteries we've been looking at the last few months. If I had to pick an overall theme for Season 3 here on Unsolved Jewish Mysteries, it's this. Humans are generally pretty bad at conserving things. We've got a few huge structures still standing from ancient times, none in very good condition. We've got a few relics that old, but they require extraordinary maintenance to preserve. Things we do have tend to get wrecked in time, destroyed by war, sunk at sea, burned in a fire. Whether purposefully or accidentally, we lose a lot of stuff. So maybe it's less a question of theological uncertainty, of the idea that somehow the Jewish people transgressed and are no longer deserving of the Ark. Maybe it's just a question of practical necessity. By the 6th century, the Ark had already been kidnapped, nearly destroyed, and moved about from place to place. In terms of simple risk management, perhaps it was best for God to hide it away somewhere from us. Sure, we can debate whether the Ark ever really existed, or the lost menorah, or the golem, or the giant race of men, or the ten lost tribes, or Christopher Columbus's bar mitzvah suit. But maybe a better way to think about it is that there are some things we're not meant to find. Some things are too precious to risk putting in our hands. For those things, for those truly unsolved mysteries, perhaps the best way to protect them is to make sure that we never find them. That the best way to keep them forever is to keep us eternally looking, wondering, and marveling that such a thing has ever existed. Okay, so that's a wrap on Season 3. Wow. I hope you enjoyed all these stories. I know I got really into telling them. This was a lot of fun. So next season, Season 4, we'll be picking up where Season 2 left off on May 14th, 1948 with the establishment of Israel. I'll be diving into the beginning years of the State of Israel, its early challenges, its heroes and villains, Palestinian refugees and Jewish refugees, and all the tensions and triumphs accrued by this tiny little country under constant threat in the 1950s and 60s. In the meantime, I'll be taking the rest of the summer off from recording to write and research and prepare season four. But don't forget about me. I'll still be updating content on the website, and I'm going to do kind of a bunch of revision stuff on the website as well, so you'll see some changes. I may write an article or two here or there. I may have an email going out. You can sign up for that email and access everything Jew Ought to Know related at my website, jewoughtoknow.com. Once again, thanks to my friends and family and supportive listeners and everyone else who helps make this podcast possible. As again, I feel like this is a tradition now, like last season, the staff at my local Pete's Coffee Joint, where I sit and write most of these episodes. So that's it for now. Talk to you again in September with a new season on a history of Israel. See you later. <laughs>